This episode of Songwriter Stories is sponsored by Piano Wars. Piano Wars offers unique, high-energy entertainment featuring dueling pianos, sing-along, audience participation, and dance music. Find out more at pianowars.com. You're listening to Episode 2 of Songwriter Stories. I'm Dave Caruso. The dynamic guitar pop of Detroit's Nick Punty has earned the praise of critics and fans all over the world. Although he's been racking out since the 1970s, Nick's most recent albums have defined his signature sound and generated his biggest waves yet by combining a persistent backbeat, inventive lyrics, and classic songwriting hooks. Let's listen. In this episode, we'll ask Nick what drives him to keep making pop records as we delve into his creative methods and his distinctive approach to songwriting. In other words, we're here to find out what makes Nick tick. Nick Punty, welcome to Songwriter Stories. Thanks for having me, Dave. Let's talk about songwriting. This year, you're going to release your sixth solo album. Is that right? Math was never my best subject, but yeah, it sounds right. You do for greatest hits package at this point. Doesn't that sound attractive where you just collect a few songs from every album and you add a tune or two and you don't have to write 10 new songs anymore? Yeah, you only have to write one or two, like Mary's Jane's Last Dance. That would be a good one. I think someone wrote that. Let's go over the evolution of your 
musical career starting back in the Pleistocene period, which is, you know, the 1970s. And you were age 12 when you started in a band called Dwarf and you recorded several singles and an EP. Later, you rebranded as The Take and you made several more unreleased recordings to shop around in California. In your 2013 song, 13 in My Head, you refer to being a 13-year-old member of a band and having stars in your eyes. And then in your 2015 song, Vaguely Familiar, you describe a band that's grown tired after many years of trying to make it. Are those songs bookends in a way documenting that period of your life? I think 13 in my head was about like, here I am, I'm, you know, past the half a century mark and still want to do it. But obviously a part of me is 13 in my head because, you know, why would you do it? But once you get the bug, it's kind of defines you to a certain point and that's what you do. And, you know, you can get better as you get older. I listen to those songs and I, and I picture there are sort of semi-autobiographical moments, it seems like, of the very fact that it, you use the age of 13 and not some other age. And then, of course, you talk about um, in California when you were with The Take, that was one last shot for the band. And yeah, yeah, definitely. It was, you know, the whole band moved out you know, from, from Detroit to L.A. and was like, let's see what we've got. Um, and it was probably not the best time to go as uh, we really weren't you know, the flavor of the week or month or year. Uh, hair metal was beginning and we were a Midwestern pop rock band and um, just, you know, we weren't going to get anyone's attention. I could only wear so much mascara, you know. And <laughs> that really wasn't our scene. But it's funny, though, I, I did find that when living in L.A., our songwriting did kind of get a little tougher, maybe a little bit a little bit more rock. Um, and who knows, you know, if Guns N' Roses would have, covered one of the songs I was writing at the time, it would have, it probably would have worked for him, but we didn't have the whole package. You know, we were, we grew up together, started out sixth graders and went through adolescence and played, you know, a ton of gigs through the years. We played a lot of gigs at a young age because we played like junior high schools and high school dances. And then we'd kind of grow up with our audience. Then we'd, you know, frat parties, then bars. And then the next thing it's like, well, We've done enough of this cover tune stuff. Even though we've always written songs, let's just kind of do an all original thing. Well, after that uh, band was all done, you ended your 80s with the first solo album called Cold Cruel World. And um, let me hear a little bit about your transition from the Takes Last Stand to making Cold Cruel World. Well, yeah, that was um, post-LA and me kind of coming back, maybe with my tail between my legs a little bit. I actually had that tail removed, just this stub. But that doesn't sound good either does it i think you're like more of a prize dog now there you go so um yeah it was uh, some new songs were written and i think cold curl was kind of a little bit of that it was you know kind of about a relationship that ended but i think it was still part of the maybe a little kind of the despair of you know it didn't really work out and we kind of tried to tried our thing and uh, i wanted to see what it was like making a record where it was uh, just me, me and a producer instead of um, a band thing. And I think I played most of the guitars on that uh, album too. And it was just, uh, it, was, it was a good growing thing for me. When the take ended, it really, really was the end of the, being in a band for me for quite a while. I guess I had my fill of, you know, just being a democracy. In the 90s, we didn't really hear from you on record. What were you up to? Yeah, well, I did a lot of recording in that time. Uh, a lot of songs actually... You know, I really liked, but it, I think at the time, 
it was probably just at the beginning even that CDs were out. So it was the bands would be going to make these demo tapes unless they were going to um, you know, release something on their own. But it just seemed like we, we didn't, you know, we released the things as Dwarf singles and EP. Then it was, we were always looking for someone else to release it. So we really spent the end of the Dwarf years and the Take years and then even me solo in the late 80s, early 90s was doing a lot of recording and uh, just trying to get better and better at, at that craft. And then what happened in the 90s was that I got married, started a family and kind of put the guitar down for several years. And when I was coming close to being 40 years old, I said to myself, um, self, you better start uh, writing songs again if you ever want to do it. I was okay not doing it for several years, but being a new dad and this and that, maybe maybe I wanted my kids to know what uh, what I used to do. And so that kind of started my second career, I guess. You may not be a touring act, but you're cranking the albums out again, and it's great. Yeah, it would, look, it would be great to play live and obviously, you know, do some shows. I get requests from some fans that, you know, bought the record. When are you coming to Houston or when are you going to come to Europe? And those are great thoughts. But, you know, the reality is, you know, making records, it's, it's always been kind of the what I really wanted to do more than anything. So I get to do that. Well, you're the Beatles after Candlestick Park. You know, the girls were screaming too loud. You couldn't hear yourself. It's time to just make records and let them hear the records. Yeah, we heard a lot of that screaming like we were seventh, eighth graders, but the, <laughs> the girls grew up and they didn't scream as much. But, uh, <laughs> but we had a little taste of what that could have been like at a, at a tiny scale. But uh, yeah, it was, uh, it was pretty cool. Well, then in 2002, you released a second solo album called Nick Pinty. And what would you describe as the major differences in your approaches from Cold Cruel World to Nick Pinty? You're 15 years later. How were you different the second time around as a person, a music, music lover, songwriter, recording artist? Yeah, I think on that album, um, I was just kind of getting back into writing songs again, like finishing a song. There was years, years went by, I really didn't, I might have written one or two songs in it, which is just strange for me because I'm the kind of guy that's always picks up a guitar every day. So it was just kind of reintroducing myself to doing it again. And I think I came up with four or five songs I, I really liked enough to record. And at the time, I wasn't even sure if it was going to be a band thing, if I was just going to just record the songs just to have them. Didn't even know if I was going to be the singer. And I also had some other songs that I recorded in the past with the take that I felt songs were strong enough. And I wanted to give them another shot. And, uh, you know, reinterpreted them maybe slightly different, but, you know, the band, the take, um, pretty much they did songs the way I wanted to do at the time. It wasn't a big compromise by any means. We were pretty like-minded. Well, on that album, you did two songs that, that were on the previous album, the previous solo album. They were called Lost in the City and Anyone Else But You. Did you think no one's going to hear that other album now, so let's make sure that they get to be available? I still like the song. So what were you thinking about? Yeah, yeah, for sure. It was just like um, pretty much exactly that. I mean, this, this kind of songwriting I do kind of classic rock songwriting um, doesn't really go out of style. Maybe it's necessarily in style, but kind of timeless. So why not give them another shot? Well, in 2005 to 2011, you got together with some friends and recorded two albums and an EP called The Respectables, Sibley Gardens, and Three. How did that come out? Well, um, when I did the Nick Newty album in 2002, of uh, friend of mine, Joe Gatiss, um, 
they always played in heavier bands than me. There, there was a band called uh, Muggsy, and then they called Weapons, and he played with Rob Tyner in a band and uh, Cub Coda. So it was very well-respected, uh, heavier rock guitar player, but I thought it might be kind of neat to include him, what I was doing, the pop stuff. And, um, yeah, I really, really liked what he played on the Nick Punty thing. So that evolved into, uh, since him and I were going to be in a band together, Let's give it a band name, obviously. And um, consequently, the songs, probably some of my writing was geared towards more that would feature Joe on guitar. Because my own stuff, I don't, the guitar is there as part of it. There's some solos, but they're usually real short, eight bars maybe. Um, so Respectables was a little different thing, maybe a little bit more Motor City rock than, um, than my solo album was. And so we... Um, we did the Respectables record, and then when we did Sibley Gardens, you got a little bit more of the kind of power pop kind of vibe in it, at least half the record. And I uh, was really happy how that one came out. And that album actually got a lot of you know, attention, much more so than the one before. So it's like, I think I'm on the right track. I think it wouldn't have made the 13 in my head if I didn't do the respectables. And so it was, it was good. I learned a lot. I played with some really good musicians. Don Denniston was a drummer. My buddy Pete Banker recorded us. And um, Joe, of course, we wrote a lot of songs together. It, it was good. It wasn't the direction probably I was always most comfortable in. Um, I think vocally I was probably trying to push myself a little bit too hard. You listen to a, uh, an album by the respectables and the guitars got the foreground it's kind of hard to compete with that. Yeah, yeah. Joe, Joe's a, you know, distinctive style and a big personality. And so it was definitely as much about Joe's guitar playing as it was my songwriting. And I think I kind of wanted to get back to me. Kind of let's serve the song first instead of the, you know, an instrumentalist. Well, everything definitely feeds into everything else that you do. Because when you came out of that period, man, you hit your sweet spot. And uh, you did 13 in my head, Beyond the Static, and Trust Your Instincts within the past five years. Three albums in a row that, despite you not being in your 20s and 30s, have been universally acclaimed as the best work of your career. Strong melodies, punchy yet poetic lyrics, cool chord changes, solid power pop sound. How can you be in your 50s and keep getting better like this? Well, you know, maybe it's because I wasn't that great early on, you know. I think maybe everybody has a time when they're most creative or most prolific. And maybe that's my time, you know? I mean, you could argue, obviously, that the Beatles, they had their time when when they wrote their best stuff. And maybe my best stuff was like, you know, ready for the senior tour. So I, I don't know. <laughs> 
what are some of the ways that your songwriting process, the way you write a song, has changed leading up to the last three albums? I've always kind of done it the same way. The only, I think the only explanation is like when I kind of stopped making music, the songs kind of stopped coming to me. And maybe because I wanted to put it on pause, maybe it was all those years of knocking on doors and um, not getting the answer that we wanted you know, for my own well-being, it was good to kind of stop creating so I wouldn't have to keep getting the rejection. I mean, there's a band or a song on the called Six Bands that was on Beyond the Static. It was pretty much about that. You know, about kind of you're doing it, you're doing it, and your friends and your family supportive and this and that, and that's really nice. But, you know, maybe it just wasn't meant to be. So I think I came to that realization, and there was no regrets. It was like, hey, I did it. And I remember talking to someone uh about it once. I said, you know, maybe we just weren't that good enough. And, it, and he looked at me, he was a fellow musician, and he kind of had that little disappointment look in his face, like, wow, you just kind of gave up, didn't you? But at that time, it, I was okay with it. And uh, I think it was pretty healthy, you know, 2020. Wherever you are in your life, regardless if it's music or anything else, I think that's where you're supposed to be. And I think that timing and people, you know, play such a huge role that there's just factors you can't do anything about. Timing of the way the world's changing and where you are with what you're doing. And I just think you're right where you're supposed to be. And I think it's killer. I think everybody that listens to your music understands that. Oh, thank, thank you. And, you know, like you said, yeah, it makes sense because... If it happened when I was younger, I wouldn't have the family that I have now. And, you know, if, if my, my fans are far fewer than they could have been, maybe if we made it, as, a, as that was a phrase we all used back then when we make it. But, uh, you know, I think they enjoyed it just as, as much it could have been in any other time. And I'm comfortable with it. And I get to still do this as long as the songs keep coming. I, I wouldn't put a record out if I didn't feel it was at least as good as what I've, I've done before or have the potential to be. Well, one of the nice things about the way you've structured your life and the way it's turned out, and you've mentioned your family a couple of times already, is that you've made time for your family and you have three lovely daughters and you've taken them to concerts and they've heard music and uh, the music that they love has been played in your house and they've influenced you in a way. Uh, they've, they've brought their youth to it. How is being a dad entered into your songwriting? What kinds of songwriters that they bring home kind of make you think? Well, sometimes it's, you know, what my daughters would listen to. It's like, I really don't want to write anything like that. Um, but especially, it seems lately with my 14-year-old, what she listens to on the radio, it's, you know, pretty much just top 40, but it's the same, you know, 10 songs, dozen songs over and over with the odd Bon Jovi song thrown in for good measure. I don't know how Bon Jovi goes with Imagine Dragons, but I know I'm never going to write a song that has thunder, thunder in it like Imagine Dragons. I mean, so it's like I really don't want to do that. So thank you, Olivia, for exposing me to that. 
I can't imagine what that band was. It had to have been the producer's idea. No band, no rock band would ever come up with that idea. So I'm trying to see how that band's in the studio. It's like, yeah, we like that. Can you do that all through the song? So anyway, I don't don't want to do that. <laughs> well, when you accompany them to concerts, do you see anything you like? Have you ever seen something? Oh, yeah. You know, especially with uh, Megan, my uh, middle daughter, she had kind of similar tastes. I mean, I introduced her to Weezer when, you know, they came out with a couple albums back-to-back uh, -back a few years ago, and she became a Weezer fan. I was a Weezer fan, you know, back when we got married. So that was pretty neat, going to those concerts. And then, I, you know, there was an artist named Frank Turner who had this song called Recovery, and I was like, what a great song. And she became a really big fan of Frank Turner, so I took her to see him at a couple of shows. That was really cool, just to see her enthusiasm. I think her favorite band for a while was um, uh, New Politics. And, you know, they're great live um you know they had a lot of backing tracks that they played to and stuff so like two guys on stage playing instruments like where's all this sound coming from ELO got in big trouble back in the 70s for doing that mm -hmm. but, uh, but now it's acceptable but just to see her enthusiasm for music that that was really great and even in Marissa my oldest daughter too I mean god when she met uh David Archuleta at a concert she was like in tears crying it was uh <laughs> it was pretty cool i guess that would have been like my monkey stage or something <laughs> but and, and then and then uh, my daughters influenced my writing i write songs either through their eyes or kind of as a dad giving them advice but it's disguised you know it doesn't really sound, you know it's not like a father to son type of song but but the inspiration's there and I, and I see what they're going through at that age and you know you forget at 19 or 22, how impulsive you could be and how impatient you could be. And it's like, okay, yeah, you know, boy, I was, yeah, I was like that. Boyfriends. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I've written a couple about that. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> sometimes they know. I've got a pretty good relationship with my daughters. They pretty much, I, I can tell them and they think it's kind of cool. Nice. For Trust Your Instincts and Beyond the Static, Megan drew the artwork. Did she ask to do that? How did that come about? You know, she was always a pretty good little artist. In fact, she's going to school now um, for product design. And I, I think I just kind of wanted to incorporate that, incorporate that into it. Because um, 13 in my head, a friend of mine did photography for that. And it was great, Tim Meeks. But I think I just kind of thought it would be kind of cool to kind of make it more of a family thing. You know, you see some artists that kind of do their own work. And some of them really shouldn't, you know. I mean, some of these songwriters think they become artists once they hit 40 or 50, and it's like, it looks like you did that in third grade. You just did that? Yeah. Well, I always think that, but I don't, I don't know that I know enough about art to say so, because Jackson Pollock could throw paint at a canvas, and, and it was sold, you know, sold for right. <laughs> whatever. Let's talk about process a little bit. I know you use a songwriting journal, whatever you might call it, uh, that you keep ideas and you save them and you refer back to them. Talk about that about a little bit. Maybe maybe even an example. Maybe you could pull where a song that needed something that you went back and had to grab something and it made the song better. Can you think of something like that? Uh, yeah, actually, on the new record, um, I've got a song called Deep Freeze, and I think I wrote it when it was really cold here a couple months ago, as you know. And uh, I had the kind of the pre-chorus to it. And then for a verse, I was just kind of like, kind of playing on an A chord, and then I had a little riff, and then a, a lyric came into my mind. It's like, boy, I think I had that lyric before. So I went back, I keep everything on an iPhone in the, um, in the note section, record ideas, 
It's like, oh, yeah, there was that idea. It never led to anywhere. So instead of starting from that, I kind of went backwards, and it's like, I need a verse. Oh, yeah, I always kind of like this. I think the first line is, um, I didn't know that I was a problem, but that line happened to work with the song I was writing. So, But usually I don't go back too much because um, I always feel like the next song might be my best one. But there's a, there's little fragments that that are back there. And sometimes I'll go back through my notes and my phone and it's like, oh yeah, that's a good melody. Yeah, I like that. And also, um, I think in the Beyond the Static, It's a Trap was that way. That was a, a riff that I had that it didn't finish it. But that was like at the same time I was making, you know, writing 13 in my head. But those are pretty rare. I think every other song on the new album came after the last album was recorded, which was a release. So that was, you know, September of 2016. So, and I started write, recording this album in um, early 2017. So most of the songs are written in a six month period, um, except Deep Freeze. I wrote that a couple months ago. I always like to have one new song that's brand new like when that you think the album's done it's like oh let me let me put this one on the record and 13 in my head was like that that was the last song for that record which became the title and kind of the theme so it's kind of nice to have those last minute songs i didn't know that you used the apple notes app because i do too and i love it because i can use it with the icloud and sync it between multiple devices so whether I'm using my iPad or my iPhone, the lyrics show up in both places. Yeah. Well, actually, I said notes. I use notes for um, lyrical ideas, but the voice memos is what I use yeah, to demo everything. And sometimes yeah. I'll be in a car and get a melody in my head. But it's funny, those songs, those are never very good. You think they're really good when you're driving in a car, and I'll sing something, and I'll listen back. I'm like, ugh, what was that? It always seems to me that whatever chords or other things that went with it, are elusive if you don't if you don't remind yourself what note you're starting on and things like that then whatever's special about it you forget it and, and you're just getting just the melody at that point yeah and, and then my best songs come when i have an opening line with a um, with a riff a melody sometimes it just comes you know pick a guitar up and within 30 seconds it's it's i mean you've heard it songwriters they all they all say the same thing. It's kind of a divine intervention or whatever. They don't really know where it comes from. Mm-hmm. Paul McCartney woke up for a dream and was singing scrambled eggs and turned into yesterday. And, you know, he was sure that it was someone else's song because it was just so, you know, ingrained in his brain. So it has to be something else. So you get those, you get those moments. And when I do, if, when I do find that something is maybe a little too similar to something else, I'll, I'll change it. I won't do what, uh, See, like the artists these days, it's like, man, why don't you make that little change? And then Jeff Lynn and Tom Petty, they wouldn't be listed as songwriter and stay with me. When you uh, have gone from collaboration in a democracy to writing by yourself, that's got to be kind of freeing to paint the whole picture yourself. Yeah, it's funny. Um, you know, when we were in Dwarf through the years, the principal songwriters were myself and Pete Maderi. And we always wrote our own songs. We really didn't collaborate back then. It was funny. We should have because I think we would have been, we would have both 
um, gain something from it. We maybe wrote a handful of songs for the years where we did that. And those were pretty cool songs. And I, w I think I wish I would have done that more when I was younger. Um, and then I, I did do that with Respectables. And then my friend Ryan Allen, I kind of discovered Ryan after the, the Sibley Gardens album was released and kind of at the end of the Respectables. And I've, you know, I met this guy who's, you know, 19 years younger than me, but doing something similar to what I was doing, but from a different, different perspective. And we became, uh, became really good friends and shared some musical ideas. And uh, when I was writing songs for 13 in my head, I played him some songs and I said, you could use a bridge here. And then boom, he, like a bridge came out in, I don't know, two minutes. So it was, we had some little magical moments there writing together. Um, probably it'd be really easy to go write a whole album with him, but he's doing his own thing. He's really prolific. He's had several bands, uh, solo projects. So I think it's good that we did a little bit together, not too much because then it would be hard to maybe tell apart a Nick and Ryan record from a, just a Ryan record. But um, he was, he was really good in adding something to what I started and uh, it was fun. In fact, in the new album I'm putting out, there's two songs I was kind of stuck lyrically, and I sent it to him. I said, "Any ideas for these?" And um, those those songs are going to be on the record. Great. Yeah, it's good. I didn't get Ryan in the studio. We talked about it, but you know, we're we're both busy. We live about an hour away from each other, and um, well, as a matter of fact, you're going to play a lot of guitar on this album, eh? I'm playing every guitar on this record, which is a actually a first so it's kind of fun and um can't wait to hear that yeah yeah we did we did a lot of we had a lot of fun with some different guitars and different tones and textures and tuning or not not tunings standard tuning but using capos and different positions and uh but um one thing that you always mentioned that i you know kind of lacking in my records is keyboards and um actually this record is going to have quite a few keyboards on it. Um, not dominating the songs because they're like the last thing put on, but just some different textures and some colors. And um, so I've got no Ryan, but I've got keyboards. So, you know, it's a good well, trick. Yeah. And then Jeff Michael's been involved with the last three albums and he'll be there again for this one, right? Yeah. Yeah. Jeff's great. You know, most of the time when we make a record, it's Jeff and I in a room together. And um, yeah, we hear th things the same way. A lot of time we'll kind of, he'll say something or I'll say something and it's almost jinx. You owe me a beer because it's the same thought. We hear the same thing. And uh, he's a guitarist too. So he, you know, thinks from a guitar player's perspective, he's, he's pushed me a lot and he's, he's great to record with because he makes very, very comfortable and definitely he gets the best out of me. I feel the same way about Andy Reid. I just wanted to put uh, my two cents in about him because we both talked about how fast he works, but he also seems to read your mind. He, when you're on your way to do something, he just saves time by knowing the direction you're going. Yeah, Andy's great. Andy played bass on, um, this will be the third album he played bass on, and he actually played um, quite a few, like uh, Hammond B3 organ parts and some songs. He, he heard the songs. He said, man, I really hear a Tom Petty vibe. Do you mind if I put some B3 on some things? Um, it's like, no, I don't mind. That'd be great. Um, I wish I had like two weeks where I could just go up and make a record for two weeks. That would be fun because he, he's great. And he's um, very upbeat, works really, really fast in the studio. And he, um, he's a lot of fun. One day I'll do that. And Andy is always supportive. It's just a huge difference to have someone working on your record that he's saying, how do we make it better? Oh, yeah. He's, um, and he's, he's a real fan. And he's, uh, you know, he uses his talents. I mean, the bass parts he plays on my 
records are are great. Nothing that I would think of, you know, it just kind of goes and and da- and Donnie Brown who plays drums and Andy and him are like brothers. They're so good at playing together. They don't have to be in the same room to know how to accompany each other. So I'm really lucky Donnie um, played, this will be the fourth album Donnie played on, third one Andy did, fourth one that Jeff, so I'm pretty loyal uh, to the people I work with. You know, maybe being in a band for so, you know, so many years growing up, just it's not like I'm always have to look for the next best thing. I just kind of want to make what I do better, you know, every time. And, you know, working with these guys is great. I don't, I don't feel like, boy, it'd be better to go record with this other guy. I don't, I don't feel that. In the music business, the word formula is either loved or loathed, but even people who don't admit to having a formula still have a structure or a set of parameters, spoken or unspoken, that define their writing style. And this can manifest itself in song structure, lyrical language, instrumentation, arrangement, or even the musical fingerprints of the band personnel. What parameters do you use in writing and recording, or what do you feel comes across as the Nick Punty formula? Well, you know, I think um, kind of classic pop songwriting, you know, try to get the to the hook, the Tom Petty saying, don't bore us, get to the chorus, or I don't know if he coined the phrase, but uh, was quoted as saying that. But, you know, if I'm in and out of the first chorus in a minute, I feel like I've kind of done something, <laughs> especially with today's, I think, uh, attention spans. How much, how much time do you really have like I said, I like to get the first line to kind of set up the whole story. And if I can get through the first verse, and if it's a pre-chorus, great chorus, in a minute, and engage the listener, and then they want to listen to more, then I've, I've you know done my job. But also some songs were, seem to um, beg for a bridge. Some songs don't. Um, I, think, I think usually like half my songs on an album will have a bridge. Um, so it's not that strict of a formula. And then something I found lately... I might repeat like after the last chorus, it'll go into either half of a verse or something. I kind of like I kind of like how that goes. You kind of bring it back to the front, and so it kind of just kind of wraps the story up a little bit. I think there's one more thing that you can add to that. That was a great description. But I would also say your lyrics breathe a certain way. Your lyrics read poetically and they have space between them. So each line, you'll say a line is a space, a line is space. The way the rhymes fall, the way it falls, it's poetic, but it's also rock and roll. And it's very natural, very flowing. You know, I'm not saying it's a formula, but I'm saying you have a style to the way you write your lyric. It's a compliment. It's a good thing. I don't know. I think it might, might go back to being the 13-year-old kid, you know, writing your lyrics out. And we had a, a mentor named Merle who was our band manager. And I think he he really helped us, to, you know, start away along being songwriters. And how many syllables does this line have? Now, does this one, is, is it going to match? I don't do that anymore. But those kind of parameters, learning how to write. Um, if it's got this many syllables and the next one should have that many, 
the sentiments are included in the right number of words or the right number of phrases. You've got, um, you do a line and you'll have a catchphrase. You do another line, the catchphrase falls in the right spot to match it or to contradict it. And it's just, you've got a real good sense of that. Oh, thanks. You know, that's, that's one thing in the power pop world you see. Um, can have some great sounds, great singers, crunchy guitars, and sounds great, but the lyrics are like um, one of my friend confessed that even he falls into. You know, it's just like it. It's just the last thing they do. They do the music yeah. first. Yeah, it's really not that important, but it's important to me. It makes a difference to me. Yeah, but somebody's got to hold up the fort, and you do very well. Everything in your music, yours always comes off rock, but it always has that carefully crafted feel. Yeah, I think um, even when I try to be polished, I can only be so smooth, just maybe the timber of my voice or whatever. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe my limited abilities, a guitar or something, it's not gonna sound like it's overly produced. I plug the guitar into an amp, put the microphones in, it just gets the right sound. So very old school in that way. Um, I mean, you can go direct with the guitars and make them sound great. I haven't done that yet just because I, I like doing it the way I do it. Talk to me about your taxi years. You worked with Taxi for a while, which is the songwriting service that you send them songs. They tell you what they're looking for. You send them something and they, they'll critique what you've written. And uh, sometimes people get through and, and actually get something placed. Talk about that a little bit. Yeah, you know, I think I did that after I think the 2002 record I put out. It was like, well, this, this might be an avenue. You know, living in Detroit, it's not like we're in New York, LA, or Nashville. So uh, maybe there's something to do this. But if you're aspiring to be a musician, songwriter, and you have to pay somebody, you know, usually I found that it's really not what you think it is. You might get some uh, reviews back, but you know, they had to say something, you know, I think you would you pay five bucks a song. So I didn't do it for very long. It was like, eh, okay. Was that where some of your film and TV stuff happened? No, I never had anything from Taxi except some polite letters. So let's move on and uh, talk about some of the other accomplishments. In 2013, you landed a song on the Mojo Magazine CD, which is the CD they paste to the front of the cover of the uh, magazine. And it was called Songs in the Key of Paul. And were songs that were either written by Paul McCartney or were chosen as Paul McCartney type songs, along with Squeeze, Robin Hitchcock, Red Cross, The Flaming Groovies, Cotton Mather, and many other luminaries. They used your song, It All Comes Down, from 13 in My Head. Uh, with apologies to your amazing wife, Kelly, who did you have to bang to get that gig? Actually, that was just a real surprise. I got an email, I guess it must have been through my website or something, someone in England and Say, you know, we found out about you. We're doing this cover mount CD and explain what it was what it was about. And it's just like you said, songs kind of influenced by Paul McCartney, melodic. And first I said, you know, okay, I'm, I'm reading down. Okay, what's it going to cost me, you know? And uh, so I emailed him and, uh, and he said, which song do you want to do? I said, yeah, your choice. And I had a song called She's a Good Time, which was more Beatlish to me. I thought he would choose that one, but he uh, chose It All Comes Down, and it was, which was kind of one of my favorites in the record. And I said, great. That's the way you do it. That's the way it is. It all comes down to your 
you know, he had to sign the contract kind of saying, well, this is the property of them, this and that. I mean, you, I retained the masters and all that, but I didn't ever expect any money from it, just, just the exposure, which was great. Um, but actually about a year later or six months later, a uh, company attorney's office from England said, Hey, you know, you've got some money out there. You had this song in this cover mountain. So they collected quite a bit of money from me. It was, it was, you know, quite a surprise. So it's like, you know, something that came totally out of the blue like that. And I think the guy said he was just kind of searching for some new power pop, must have read a review on me, heard the stuff and really liked it. And uh, so that, that was great. Um, that was a highlight last several years, as was um, the Trust Your Instincts getting a lot of airplay on The Loft. Mike Marone was great to feature my music so often. Hold that thought. Hold that thought, because I want to get back to you. One more thing is, and it all comes down, ends with yeah, yeah, yeah. So I thought that was pretty funny. Yeah, that was Ryan actually came up with that. It was. Uh, but, I mean, if you're going to pick a Beatles song, right? The chorus of 13 in my head says all my yesterdays and seems like yesterday. So there's yesterday in that one. So he had a lot to choose from, really. Oh, that's true. Sorry, Paul. <laughs> uh, I'm going to name an accomplishment and you tell the listeners a little bit about it. And let's get back to what you were saying about uh, Mike Marone. Well, Mike Marone uh, is program director for The Loft on Sirius XM. He recently retired at the end of 2017, unfortunately. I think he saw what was coming, that The Loft was being preempted by the Eagles channel, the Billy Joel channel, and uh, the Loft listeners are really avid music fans. They really tried to do the best to keep it on the airwaves. And the Loft still exists, but as a um, online only. And uh, yeah, it's not broadcast anymore on, on the radio waves, but um, got a lot, tons of airplay on the Loft. And the, actually took my band up to Washington, D.C., early last year and we recorded a live set there with Mike Marone. He, he was great. It was, uh, it was a crowning achievement. Yeah, it was great. Um, then the other DJs, uh, Meg, Chris, you know, played my music a lot. So it trickled down a little bit. Yeah. And I've got a lot of support locally. And Delisi, Rob Reinhardt from WDET played my music quite a bit. You know, I've been really lucky. Um, had a song, The Respectables, a couple of Respectable songs, and uh, one in the film, one in the network TV show, um, which was nice to get paid, you know, for music. And seeing your name up and, you know, going to film and seeing your name as a songwriter and a performer at the end of the credits was pretty cool. Very. Now you've got uh, this new album coming out this year. Did you say the month? I think June. We're uh, doing final mixes this week. Um, working on the artwork, and then we got to get it mastered and all that. So, would you care to share the title with us? You know, yeah, I had a working title. Then it was, um, it was uh, one of the songs is called "Temporary High," and I really don't like, even though I've done it twice, I don't really like naming the album after one particular song because it's you feel like, oh, it's this song and nine others, whatever. Yeah. Um, but it was going to be called "Temporary High," but now it's going to be called um, "Diametrically Opposed." Yeah, Deep Freeze and Temporary High are two, two of the songs in the record. I've, um, the song I wrote about my wife called You're Perfect and I'm Not. Every husband should say it to the wife at least once. But, of course, they already know that. You're perfect and I'm not. You put me on the spot.
and actually got a couple minor key songs, which is I don't I, I usually just write major key or f- release songs in major key. So I'm, I'm really happy with those kind of um, they're, they're just stretching out in, in different directions and you know, it gives a little more variety to the album. And um, so I think there's gonna be 11 songs on this record. Usually I'll throw out one or two, but there's not one here that I really want to throw out. And I really do like 10 as a number. Um, especially if you do vinyl, you get five on each side. But um, I think we'll probably do 11 for this record. You're also featured on the Future Man's Records um, Matthew Sweet tribute album called Altered Sweet. Yeah, that was fun. Yeah, I tried to do the um, an obscure Matthew Sweet song. Oh, it's a good one. But Behind the Smile. Oh, thanks. Yeah, that was like a song I didn't, kind of definitely under the radar. And it was short, so I, you know, I could make it, and have to spend too much time doing it. And that's ex- exclusively on Altered Suite at Bandcamp? Yeah, just the whole licensing thing and stuff. Yep. I mean, I mean, Keith's got that worked out, I guess. Or Keith uh, Clinton Smith, yep. Yep. And um, so, I, yeah, I did that. And I also did a, a Sloan cover. And that, that was fun, too. I did that. I recorded that all up at Andy Regent studio one day. That was fun. We got uh, upcoming shows at, um, first one's going to be, International Pop Overthrow on Saturday, April 14th at PJ's Logger House. And you go on at 8.45, but anybody who goes that night better stick around because at 11 o'clock, the Hangabouts are going to be there. Um, yeah. Did they ask you to play with them at all? They didn't. Oh, well, no. you just have to just barge on stage then. Yeah, they didn't. That's not very nice. I'm going <laughs> to have to call Chipper and ask them. Those guys, I... those guys are so mean. Yeah, um, I didn't ask them either, though. Okay, um, fair enough. Yeah, I'm going on early. I was just going to do a solo show, but um, through the power of Facebook, um, uh, a couple of friends mentioned that they'd like to play that show. Do I need a bass player? And I was like, yeah, oh, yeah that'd be fun. And a drummer, because my uh, Andy and Donnie couldn't make that show, so I was going to do solo. So um doing an early show, 845 that night. And then on Saturday, May 19th, playing with the band. Um, Chris Richards and the Subtractions. Chris Richards and Subtractions and Television City. They're doing like a dual uh, album release night. So I'm going to open up that night too. It'll probably go on a little closer to 10 o'clock, I imagine. And uh, same guys, I think, unless they, you know, they quit after our first gig. Okay, so April 14th and May 19th, both Saturdays, both at PJ's Logger House. Yep. Go see Nick. Now, people want to buy your albums, uh, at least the last three. Where do you recommend they go? Where do you want to send them? Well, yeah, I've got a band camp site, which is nice because, you know, the um, bands may get a little bit more money for, for them. But, you know, uh, I'm on a record label, Gem Records. Um, any, you go to any record store, you could buy it on Amazon. You could buy it digitally on iTunes if people still do that. Um, you know, with Spotify, it's, it's, you know, you really don't have to buy records, which is crazy if you pay that 10 bucks a month. But mm-hmm. I think real music fans like to have something that they can hold still, whether it's CD or vinyl. Uh, there's a difference in sound quality in, in, in both of those over an MP3 file, obviously. But All the cover stuff that you tell, those uh, tribute albums we mentioned are uh, at Bandcamp too. Yeah, correct. You have a, a nice uh, acoustic version, unplugged version of Quicksand. Yeah, I'm going to feature that one for everybody because it's really good. You fell into a bottomless pit. You slipped out of nowhere. Get 
version i think that's was a song that it was a bonus track for 13 in my head when it was released on vinyl the following year on sugarbush records marcus from sugarbush put out um 13 in my head and beyond the static and vinyl he wanted to do trust your instincts too but i couldn't get an agreement with my label at the time but who knows maybe it'll come out eventually and uh the new record cd digital for sure talking about vinyl but you know, the reality of doing vinyl, uh, the distributors, since I'm on a label, I have to sell it to distributors and you make it like a dollar on one. So, you you know, you just really can't make it CDs. You can make money on. you can't make money on vinyl through a dist- distributor unless you're selling them at your live gigs and I don't play live a lot. So, but it's something I'd, I'd like to do and it's not out of the question. Well, I want everybody to make sure they visit nickpunty.com. If they want to read, you've got reviews up there. You've got... Um, an interview, I think, up there, at least one. Uh, all some pictures and history and catch up with all your stuff you've been doing. I've had a great time talking with you today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Good luck with your upcoming album and your upcoming shows. Thanks, Dave. One quick programming note. PJ's Logger House is located in Detroit, Michigan. You've been listening to Songwriter Stories Episode 2 with our guest, Nick Punty. Thanks for spending some time with us. There's more to this podcast than just the interview. For bonus content, visit songwriterstories.com and click on the writer's room for this episode. That's all for now. I'm Dave Caruso, and I'll see you next time.